Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is your 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Tonight's story is from the city of Cambridge in Guernsey County. That's east-central Ohio, and the year is 1991. It's Tuesday, August 27, and a fresh start for most students at Cambridge High School, being the first day of the school year. Robin Stone was a young woman caught between two worlds. She was 17 years old and beginning her senior year. She loved school and was very intelligent. She was an animal lover and thought she might go to veterinary school after graduation. But Robin was also soon to be a mother. She was seven months pregnant. After her first day of her senior year, Robin returned home from school. She lived on Southgate Parkway with her mom, Judy, and her 10-year-old sister, Jamie. She wasn't there long when the phone rang. She picked it up. Judy could only hear her daughter's side of the conversation, which was brief. I'll be there. I'll be there. Robin told her mom she was going to her friend Madeline's house to do some homework, but she'd be home in about an hour for dinner. She pulled out of the driveway in her 1980 Ford Granada. Robin was never seen again. That evening, Judy made calls to Robin's friends. They hadn't seen her. When she hadn't returned by morning, Judy reported her daughter missing. Robin's car, turns out, had already been discovered. The previous night, a property owner noticed the Granada on his land off Claysville Road. The land had a vacant trailer home on it, and he'd had problems with people breaking into it before. He drove by once in a while to make sure everything was okay when he saw the car that shouldn't have been there. He pulled up next to it, thinking he was about to catch some troublemakers in the act. The car was empty, but barely so. The hood was still warm. Authorities determined the car had likely been parked there no more than an hour or two after Robin had gone missing. Weeks turned into months and still no sign of Robin. The holiday season was a painful one for the Stone family as Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas all came and went with no word from their missing daughter, their missing sister. In a story on the website Project Cold Case, Robin's sister Jamie shared how she and her big sister always spent Christmas Eve together, tucked in Robin's bedroom, waiting for Christmas morning to arrive. Jamie said it kept her from being tempted to peek into the living room to see if Santa had arrived yet. That Christmas Eve of 1991 was the first time Jamie had to sleep alone her mind filled with wondering where Robin was. Three days later, on December 28, Jamie learned her big sister's fate. Three hunters from Zanesville were walking in the area of Lewberg Lake, about five miles from Cambridge, in the southwestern corner of Guernsey County. There was a patch of trees surrounded by field, and there they came across some bones. 
Charles Pickenpaw Jr. was the first to see them and thought it might have been a deer. He waved to his dad to come have a look. Animals had spread the bones through a larger area, but one thing suggested this might be more than an animal. Also scattered throughout the area were clothes. As soon as Charles Jr. saw the human jawbone at his foot, he ran from the site. The hunters called the Guernsey County Sheriff. Deputies knew about Robin Stone's missing persons report, and they knew she had been pregnant. They started looking specifically for baby bones. They found them. Even before dental records proved it, they knew it was Robin. The bones gave no clue as to how she was killed. The coroner found no bullet holes, no marks from a knife. Her cause of death remains undetermined. The police had a long list of people to be interviewed. Robin kept a diary, almost daily, of her activity. She'd been involved with many boys. But it was clear that the one she was most smitten with was her most recent boyfriend, the one she said who had gotten her pregnant, Lee Savage. She'd written about the meeting that January, when and where they had sex, each time he tried to break up with her, each time she begged him to come back. And so detectives began with Lee, and Lee immediately denied he could have been the father of Robin's unborn baby. The Savages lived next to Lewberg Lake, and less than a mile from where Robin's body had been found. According to Robin's diary, the two of them had spent a lot of time at the lake. But in talking to the savages, authorities expanded their persons of interest to include Lee's father, Jack Savage. Jack was an angry man with a temper. He didn't like Robin, said she wasn't good enough for his son. She was lower class, he said, a girl who lived on the wrong side of the proverbial tracks. He insisted to detectives that Lee hadn't even met the girl until she was four months pregnant, counter to what their friends had said, and counter to Robin's own diary, which indicated they started dating a month before Robin conceived. Deputies also learned Jack had had a tumultuous, even violent relationship with his own son, They said if Lee lost a fight at school, he'd come home to a beating from his dad for having lost it. But the prosecutor simply didn't have enough evidence to charge either Lee Savage or Jack Savage or anyone for Robin's murder, and the case went cold. Eventually, the Guernsey County Sheriff released Robin's bones, and her family was able to hold a funeral for her. Her family tried to cling to their memories. In that Project Cold Case story, Judy Stevens talked about her daughter's childhood, how she loved to visit ponies at Aunt Becky and Uncle John's house, how she studied sports medicine in high school and practiced wrapping injuries, something that came in handy when she found a rabbit with an injured leg in her backyard and nursed it back to health. Robin's friend, Jody Stopiak, talked about how the two girls met in fifth grade when Jody was new to elementary school. Robin was the first to introduce herself and took Jody under her wing. They built a childhood of memories together, sleepovers and pranks. 
drama class, and the marching band color guard. Robin's little sister grew up. Jamie is a mother now. Her daughter shares Robin's middle name, Diane. Jamie said she tries to push out the bad thoughts. We all coped the best that we could, and for me, I tried to avoid thinking about it, she said. But the harder I would try to forget, the more I thought about it. There isn't a day that goes by that my sister doesn't cross my mind, she said. And the family can't forget that the person who took Robin's life and the life of her unborn baby still walks free. In 2014, the TV crime show Cold Justice tried to do something about that. The show features a pair of nationally known investigators who work with local authorities, a set of fresh eyes hoping to find new information. Cold Justice conducted several interviews. They started with Marigold Marsh, the mother of Madeline, where Robin was supposed to be doing her homework the night she disappeared. Robin's mom had called the house looking for her at 8.30 p.m., only to learn she had never been there. Marigold said a half hour after receiving that call, she picked up the phone and called Jack Savage. She told him Robin was missing. She said she barely got the words out of her mouth when Jack said, Well, I hope the bitch is dead. He went on to call Robin welfare trash and that she lied about Lee getting her pregnant. Marigold said he was screaming, so she hung up. Cold Justice next talked to Elsie Tucker. Remember, this was 2014 now. Lee Savage had been married several times. One of his ex-wives was the daughter of Elsie. And Elsie dropped this bombshell. She said Lee admitted the baby could have been his, but also insinuated it might have been his dad's. Investigators were stunned. Nobody had suggested to them that Robin might have had sex with Jack Savage. One thing original investigators had never done was to use DNA to confirm the identity of the father of Robin's unborn baby. It was time to do that. Lee Savage's daughter from another marriage volunteered a cheek swab. A test was done, and it confirmed that one of the Savage men was the father. To narrow it down, they needed a DNA sample from both Lee and Jack. A court order gave them the clout to go collect it. When the Guernsey County Sheriff's Department visited Jack to take his DNA sample, he didn't bother to try to hide his feelings. I didn't give a shit what happened to that girl, he said. And then he repeated that Robin was well into her pregnancy before she'd even met his son. When the investigator told him about the DNA test confirming the baby was half-savage, he said, don't come out and give lies to me like that. Jack gave up his DNA without a battle, but then warned the detective if he came back to his land and tried to claim the kid was his, buddy, I'll blow your ass off. Next, investigators went to collect Lee's DNA. He was cooperative, even went to the station to answer more questions. He started by reiterating he couldn't have been the baby's dad because he and Robert had only ever had anal sex. When he was shown the DNA results, he acted like he couldn't understand how such a thing could happen.
When the DNA came back, it proved once and for all the baby had belonged to Lee. In the years since Robin's death, Lee himself had developed a reputation for violence. Cold Justice spoke to several of his past wives and girlfriends. Domestic abuse was a common theme, and several of them said he liked rough sex, sometimes choking his partner into unconsciousness during the act. One former wife said Lee told her, You're lucky I don't do to you what I did to that girl. The Guernsey County Sheriff presented all the new information collected by Cold Justice to the county prosecutor to see if there was enough yet for a grand jury. But it wasn't. Still, the effort had solved two mysteries for Robin Stone's family. They now knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Lee Savage was the father of her baby. And the DNA test answered a question that was never far from their thoughts. Was Robin's baby a boy or a girl? A grandson or a granddaughter? A niece or a nephew? The baby was a boy. That's it for our 10-minute mystery. We'll see you next Sunday for our next full episode. Until then, enjoy the rest of your week. May all of your mysteries have happy endings. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.